Good morning again. We are continuing in our series in 1 Thessalonians and picking up in uh, chapter 4. Paul has been encouraging this church along the way. It's a church that he helped start in Acts 17. We read about that. And has been keeping in touch with them. He sent Timothy, who's kind of one of his right-hand men back there to check on how they were doing. He's writing to encourage them. And uh, he's turning to kind of give instruction at this point. So this is uh, chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands, as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is God's Word. Thanks be to God. Uh, We come here, we come to God's Word to rest in Jesus, what He has accomplished for us, to have our lives reoriented and to be reinvigorated for life out in the world. And there's no passage that's clearer about this than this one. But it's also not the easiest topics. So let's pray that God would uh, teach us by his word. Lord, speak, for your servants are listening. Open our ears by your spirit. Open our hearts that we might receive it and teach us to walk in your ways. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Um, A couple weeks ago, I ran across an article from um, from that publication of notoriety, The Onion. Um... If you don't know, it's a comedic website that's like fake headlines. And the headline was... Truly being seen still ranks among the worst possible experiences in human existence. Here's, here's part of the article. In the results of a new study published in the Journal of Woe, researchers from Stanford University revealed Tuesday that truly being seen still ranks among the worst possible experiences in human existence. Quote, we have found conclusive evidence that realizing somebody has managed to look past your protective facade and recognize you for who you are continues to be the most punishing and humiliating experience the human psyche is capable of withstanding, said lead researcher David Nguyen, 
who noted that the phenomena once again outranked the sensation of drowning, being on fire, and amputation of limbs without anesthetic, and narrowly edged out feeling as if no one sees you at all. It stings, doesn't it? When we talk about holiness, you know, some of us are on guard because uh, we hate the nauseous idea of self-righteousness, and that's that's certainly understandable, but when that idea of holiness comes, most of us shrink back from it because it has this idea of being seen for what we are. The nuisance of our guilt and our shame. Because the thing about being, the difference between holiness and being a good person is the standard, right? Being a good guy is just a relative standard. But we know when we start talking about holiness, we are talking about God and his character. And we all know we don't live up to it. But you know, the strangest thing starts off this passage. The word finally. There's at least a third of this letter left. (laughs) And Paul says, finally. I think because Paul's main point, as we've already been seeing along the way in this series, is that he wants to encourage them. He doesn't want them to be discouraged. He wants them to press on, to continue in what they've been doing. And Paul doesn't understand holiness to be a discouraging reality, but a beautiful thing that we're called into. So we'll see this morning... First, what the process of sanctification is. And then we're going to see two practical ways in which it works itself out in our lives. Okay, the process and two practical ways. So, uh, the process. It's walking. That's Paul's metaphor. That's how he starts out in verse 1. This is a common metaphor throughout the Bible. What it means to, to follow a path is to follow the path of holiness, but it's also to please God. What holiness means is to follow this path of pleasing God, and it's rooted in what he taught them. And we know from Acts 17 that we looked at, Paul taught them by the scriptures. And that's not a throwaway comment, as if, of course, we're supposed to listen to the Bible. But in fact, it's to recognize that this is where we need to go to figure out what it means to be holy. We get a lot of ideas from other places. In fact, I mean, there's a long history in Western thought of thinking that God maybe isn't that concerned about the details and and we should improvise what we think it means to be a good person. And as we become less and less uh, Christian as a culture, as we become more and more post-Christian, what has happened? Have we become less judgmental? I hope that 2020 taught us that our public discourse is not less judgmental for having our ethics free to make what we want of them. In fact, what it's done is make us more judgmental. See, actually being rooted in Scripture is what's freeing. Because we are not making it up and then demanding that others conform to our ideas. 
but we're being called by our good creator to follow in the path of his good will. And notice what his will is in verse 3, your sanctification. Uh, One of these things that's a little bit obscure to us in English, because English is uh, kind of a mutt as languages go, is we have holy, holiness, we have sanctified, sanctification, and all these kind of words that come from different places. The Greek here is all words rooted in one single word group, hagios. Holiness, sanctification, all these things are the same word group. It means to become holy, to be made like God. And this is, in fact, what Paul had just prayed for them at the end of chapter 3. He prays that God would establish your hearts blameless in holiness. That was Paul's prayer for them. That their hearts would be established by God in holiness. And this is really, really helpful. Just that little turn of phrase for understanding what the process looks like. Uh, What it means to be sanctified... What it means to be made holy, the process, is first and foremost to recognize that it is God's work by his grace. Some Christians think that the process of sanctification, the process of growing in holiness, the other stuff was God's work, that is, this is our work. Wrong. Period. Wrong. What Paul knows, what he's already been praying, is for God to do this work in them. And listen, Paul says this other places. Ephesians 2, right? He says, we are uh, God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Is that walking language again? God prepared them. God is the one who is working in us. In Philippians 2, he tells us, Paul tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So that even when we're called into action, it is still God's work. Without qualification, it is God's work. And it is rooted in his grace. He doesn't do this because we deserve it. He doesn't, he's not calling us to be the kinds of people that deserve his grace. All of this is by him, and it is through the Holy Spirit. Notice later in the passage, he mentions this, right? That if you disregard this, you're not disregarding me. You're disregarding God, who gives the Holy Spirit to you. It's the Holy Spirit at work. And all of this is really helpful as we start to think about who we are and what it means to be changed, because the philosopher Charles Taylor talks about the way that modern people think about themselves is as a buffered self, which is different than the way people in the ancient world, people in the medieval world, even to some extent people in other parts of the world today think about themselves as being sort of open to various spiritual influences. We don't think of ourselves that way. We think I'm in charge of my life. I'm making my decisions. And what Paul is telling us is we're wrong. And in fact, he locates it. 
He locates exactly where the Holy Spirit works. He prays that we would be established in our hearts. Over and over and over again, we see clearly that this is the primary place that the Spirit works, is in your heart. Not your circumstances. It's not wrong to pray, of course, about your circumstances. But the place that God tells us the Spirit is doing his most important work is at the level of your heart. Which is not to say your feelings, but your deepest commitments, your deepest desires, your deepest longings that define who you are, out of which all those desires flow. That that's what he's changing. And he's giving us, Ezekiel uses this uh, imagery in chapter 36 of Ezekiel, of taking out a heart of stone, a thing that doesn't work anymore, and giving us a heart of flesh, one that really beats. That's where God is doing his work. To change us so that we actually want to do what is good. And he's renewing us into the image of Jesus. This is a second part of understanding sanctification. He's changing us into the likeness of Jesus. Now, Paul, I'll admit this isn't necessarily crystal clear in this passage, but over and over and over again, Paul tells us we are being renewed after the image of Christ. So that what we're being changed into is not some arbitrary idea of what it means to be a good person, but it's to grow the very character of Jesus himself the one who loved us and gave his life for us. That that's what we're being changed into. So one of the challenges, I think, for many people, especially if you grew up in the church, is after a while, you start to think, okay, I've been been following the rules, trying to anyway. When do I get to do what I want to do? And Paul would say, You've been doing what you wanted to do. Maybe you've been trying to get what you want via the rules, but you've still been doing what you want to do. And the freedom of the gospel is knowing that we are being changed into the very likeness of the one who really is good. And Paul will go so far in Galatians as to say, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ that lives in me. It's Jesus' character that is is growing in us by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of holiness at work in us. And the third piece of kind of understanding the process is to understand that there's always two sides to it. It is dying to an old thing and living into the new thing. Dying to sin, living to righteousness. Paul is the king of doing this. Uh, he, do, he does it in a lot of other places. Again, this isn't exactly in this passage either, but he's, he's always telling us, put away the old, live into the new. And they go together because you cannot die to one thing without living into something else. The heart abhors a vacuum. You can't just lose the one thing without the other. All of this kind of adds up then to an idea of sanctification 
that is about growing the character of Jesus in us by the power of God and being transformed from one thing, the old thing, into a new. Many Christians have an idea of sanctification that is only dying to sin. And it is frustrating and empty. Because while we see those lists of all the sins you're supposed to die to, we fail to hear all the good things we're supposed to live into. Like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. That's what it looks like to grow. That's what it looks like to become holy. So let me give you a litmus test for your understanding of sanctification. How do you pray? Prayer is key because sanctification only works in dependence on God. It only works when we depend on Him. Paul knows this. That's why he prayed for them first before he starts telling them what they're supposed to be doing. He starts with prayer. If you're trying to pursue sanctification, if you're trying to live a Christian life without prayer, how's it going? Most of the time, not well. Because to actually grow is to grow deeper into dependence on God. Not less, but more. And how do you pray? See, this is key. <laughs> maybe, you're a good, maybe you're good at a checklist, right? And every day you're going to read Scripture and pray. But are you still praying mostly about your circumstances? Bring that to God. I'm not saying ignore that. I'm not saying leave that behind. But are you praying consistently that your heart would be changed? Or are you praying about other people and the decisions they're making? that influence your life? Or are you praying that sin, and be specific, <laughs> the sin in your life would be done away with and that the opposite would grow in your heart? I have a few things that I pray for each day uh, and I pray to be done with certain things in my life and to see the opposite grow. Right, one of them is pride. That pride would die in my heart, but that humility would grow. I haven't arrived. Be wary of anybody who says they've arrived at humility. I don't know. What, not sure what that looks like. But pray this, that the, be specific. Would this thing die in my heart? And would this other thing grow? That is the place to start to ask if you're actually pursuing sanctification the way the Bible talks about it. That's the place to start. And the more that we understand that, and that dependence on God, the more we can actually make sense out of Paul's statement about God being an avenger in verse 6. I don't know if that caught your ear. Right, but Paul's giving them a warning that the Lord is an avenger in all these things. 
And I think the way we probably think about that is as some scary, ominous thing that, like, if you screw up, watch out. But what Paul is really getting at here is not that, you're, that you know, God's done all this, now you need to run with the ball by yourself. And if you drop it, watch out. That's not what he's telling us. Instead, Paul is saying, look, if you resist this, you're actually, if you resist following the Lord, you're actually turning away from grace. That's what it looks like to actually try to do it on your own. Is to try to make up the rules by yourself. Or to, you know, white knuckle it. <laughs> Just gripping the steering wheel, trying to stay on the, on the road in the middle of a storm. And what Paul is telling us is, look, flee from these sins. Deal with what's going on in your hearts by the Holy Spirit, not under your own power. Because if you resist grace and you try to do this on your own, you will find that coming to God on your own is a bad way to go. Because he will take you on your own terms. But this is not the way of sanctification. The way of sanctification is confidence in God, that he delivers all that he promised, that everything is guaranteed. This is the funny thing about sanctification, right? Because Jesus died to sin, and because he was raised up and broke the power of sin, paid the punishment for it, we know it will be done with. In other words, we know what God has already said and we know where it will end. It will end with us being changed. And all we're called to do is walk the path by his grace between his resurrection and his return. In other words, we walk it with confidence. Now, I'm not saying it's easy. But I'm saying we walk it with confidence knowing where the path goes. The path goes to the place where we are holy, where we can see God face to face. That's where it's going. That's what the process looks like. Okay, there's two practical ways in which Paul fleshes this out, you might have noticed. Everybody always wants the church to talk about sex more, and then everybody gets really awkward and real quiet whenever we do talk about it. But you notice what Paul is saying in verses 3 and 4, right? He is calling the church to self-control. Paul is not telling us whether sex is good or bad. In fact, the Bible tells us it's good. It's powerful. It's beautiful. But like any good, powerful thing, when it's misused, it's extremely destructive. That's it's actually pretty simple in that sense, right? It is made for something good and beautiful. But when it's misused, it's incredibly destructive. I got to say, as a pastor, some of the, usually the most destructive things that people have experienced have to do with this. The deepest hurts, the most long-lasting effects 
have to do with people who have sinned in some way or have been sinned against in some way related to sex. And notice this. Paul doesn't say it's merely the actions. It's about digging into our desires. The heart, as we said, is not your feelings. It's Rather, it's our desires that come out of our heart, that come out of our deepest commitments. And Paul is not interested in saying, well, look, you know, as long as you don't act on this, it's fine. No, he wants to deal with the deep down problems, the deeper issues. And he notes, right, that this is, that it's to sin against God and to die as Holy Spirit. It's to sin, of course, in ourselves, and it's also to sin against another. Because any kind of, you know, any kind of sexual desire even, that we, even when we just do this in our heads, is to use somebody else. It's actually where the word comes from that's translated sexual immorality. It's porneia in the Greek, and it means to commodify. Primarily is used around prostitutes in the ancient world, but it means to commodify something or someone. And the early church, uh, Paul being one of the most important people in this, uh, starts to use that to describe everything that's outside of the way God has meant sex to be used. Now, we live in a permissive culture, but the ancient world was a permissive culture as well. The Greco-Roman world was extremely permissive in a certain way. It, would, it took as a given that our urges are pervasive. And we could be attracted to all kinds of things. Anybody, you know, so the, this idea of sort of a fixed orientation or anything like that was n- not really part of the way that they saw the world. They saw us as be, having all kinds of urges that take us in different directions. And on that point, by the way, Paul does not argue. Our hearts are chaotic. And there are many, a strange thing that come out of our hearts on their own. Where the ancient world was different than ours is that they simply wanted to channel those desires and actions in a way that reinforced the social order. And so the further you were up up the social ladder, the more, of course, permissiveness was given to you. Um, The further down, the less you had. Of course, if you were male, there was more than if you were female. And what that led to was an exceedingly brutal regime. Uh, Slaves were essentially available to their masters whenever they wanted. Pedophilia was rampant. Prostitution was ubiquitous in the ancient world. One of the reasons Paul talks so much about this was because it was everywhere. It really was. Some things have changed, but some things remain the same. Our modern world is also extremely permissive, except we think a lot less about maintaining social order and we think about our personal freedom. So that we define self-control as repression. That if you're trying to control what you're doing, you're maybe just repressing your desires. 
we talk about our sexual desires as if they constitute our identity. Again, this is what gives meaning. So on the one hand, we have a narrative that this is merely an animal drive that everyone should just figure out what they want to do with. But that's also the most, most important thing you can do to be a fully realized human being. Which is a little confusing. Um, if it's just an animal drive, but also the thing that helps you be a fully realized human being. Um, but at the center of, of it, of course, is a self-oriented concept of sexuality that cannot help but be defined in terms of what we selfishly want. Uh, I spent a decade on college campuses, right, where, of course, the hookup culture is rampant and, in many ways, encouraged, often framed as being empowering. But the thing that most universities are lying to themselves about is that if they give that kind of selfish empowerment, they also create the shadow side of it, the rape culture. Because if people are simply acting selfishly, at some point, sometimes people will just act selfishly without caring about anybody else. All this is the fruit of a kind of self-serving view of sexuality, whereas the biblical view is that sex is not made to be for your fulfillment, but to be an expression of the self-giving love that you have for another. You understand the difference? It's supposed to be an expression of your care for the other person, not a way to get what you want. Now, I'm not saying it doesn't have good, strong, uh, fulfilling desire, you know, fulfillment for, the per- for you. I'm saying the primary focus is on loving and caring for the other person, which is why, again, the Bible always thinks about this within the context of marriage as the place that's appropriate because it's within that context of trust, right? That you can actually trust the other person. It also proves that just because you're following the external rules and constraints, that doesn't mean it's healthy even. I mean, evangelicals have talked a lot, for example, about how to define marriage. And I don't necessarily disagree with the ways in which that's defined. I think those are biblical. But the Bible also is telling us that there's actually, there can, you can still have a pretty unhealthy way of handling sex within a marriage. You've checked off all the rules, but it can be profoundly unhealthy even within it. What we're being called into is a view of it that is an expression of self-giving love. That's when it's healthy. Now, of course, some of us are married, some of us are not. What Paul is telling us is that the answer is not So everybody find the right situation. He tells us the answer is the fruit of the Spirit. It's self-control. And this is where many, you know, unfortunately things like conversion therapy have gone awry. Right? It's because the the thought was that what, what you're supposed to do is be changed from somebody who's, say, 
gay to somebody who's straight. That is not what Paul tells us. Paul tells us instead to be self-controlled, to work on our desires. That doesn't mean everybody's supposed to be married and have 2.5 kids or whatever, you know, whatever the number is now. It's probably lower than that these days. That's not what we're called to. In fact, Paul explicitly says, I actually wish more people were single in the church. He's not calling us to simply not be gay and be straight. He's saying what we're called to is self-control. He's not simply saying we should put away you know, extramarital sex and only have marital sex. He's calling us to self-control. Self-control is still as applicable if you're married as if you're not. And so we're supposed to flee from the temptation to action, but we're also supposed to confront what's going on in our hearts. Why our desires lead us into unhealthy paths. And you see, if you're actually dealing with the heart, then we can see that this isn't a form of repression, right? Repression is about telling yourself, convincing yourself that what you're experiencing is not what you're experiencing. And that is wrong. You're lying to yourself. What the Bible tells us is actually we're supposed to be radically honest about what's going on in us. And we're supposed to bring that to the Lord. And we're supposed to stop and think about what is it I'm looking for? What is the thing I'm searching for in this? When I look at something online, when I'm tempted to go home with somebody, whatever whatever is going on, we're supposed to stop and think, why, why do I need this? Why is this there? And it's only as we get to those questions that we can actually see how powerful the work of Jesus is for us. Because we go to those things for comfort. We go to those things for approval. We go to those things for control in our lives. But that is the moment we can start to see where the cross makes all the difference. Because you are loved by God more than you know. Because he has not left this world and your life out of control to the whims of sin. And he has approved of you, not as you are now, but as what he is making you into because Jesus has been judged in your place. And that helps us to deal with with the shame. Because I think the ramifications are pretty clear from all that Paul teaches on this, that to some degree or another, all of us has fallen into sexual sin. Which means all of us need to deal with the guilt and the shame of it. And the freedom of the gospel is to know we're not actually defined by that by what has happened in the past, nor by what we're tempted into in the present. That our lives are being freed from that. Not, again, to deny the good gift that sex is, but because we so easily make it into something that it's not. We look to it for the, that kind of approval, that kind of control, that kind of love that we've always wanted that is so elusive. 
There's a lot more we could say about <laughs> sex, but we need to keep moving. There is another thing that Paul puts his finger on, which is equally as applicable in our day as it was in his own, which is brotherly love. Uh, Philadelphia is the word in Greek. And what's interesting about this, Paul, Paul emphatically says, you have a good reputation in this way. Keep going. We know that you care for the others in your region. Keep going. What's surprising, though, about the New Testament use of this term is how wide it really applies to people of all kinds of different backgrounds, ethnicities, social standings, vocations, all these different ways in which our lives are divided up, and it levels them. Not that they don't matter, not that they aren't real differences, but that those who have been brought together in Jesus are profoundly connected. And he says, that, he says, look, this works out in at least three ways. Living quietly, minding your own affairs, and working with your hands. Which is not the direction most of us would head with this. Uh, but they actually go together in an important way. Uh, the first two are probably more obviously, living quietly and minding your own affairs. There's a similar statements made at the beginning of 1 Timothy 2, at the beginning of 1 Peter 3. And, and if you mishear that, you'll hear Paul and Peter saying to you, uh, you should be a kind of wilting flower. You should, you'll hear them telling you what kind of temperament you're supposed to have, which is not what they're saying. Because the, the cities and towns in the Greco-Roman world we're known for people trying to one-up one another, trying to get ahead, trying to uh, put others to shame and to get a more honor for themselves. In fact, the wealthy were constantly suing one another. Doesn't, doesn't sound like any place I know. Um, but they were constantly trying to one-up one another. So they were meddlers, they were making trouble for one another, they were taking advantage of poor decisions or the misfortunes of others. What Paul is telling us, what Peter is telling us, is we don't go that way. We're not trying to make trouble for others, we're not trying to be meddlers, we're trying to bless others. So don't engage in that kind of thing. Instead, work with your hands, that goes with it, right? so that you're not a person who is intentionally a drain on others. Now, Paul will say, bear one another's burdens elsewhere. So Paul isn't saying we shouldn't care for one another, but he's saying don't be the kind of person that intentionally lets other people pick up the slack because you'd rather sleep in or you'd rather not volunteer for this or that. He's saying, look, be consistent. And that was what Paul did. If you remember back to chapter 2, he said, look, I was making tents, so it wouldn't be a burden. He's not calling them to anything he doesn't, hasn't actually lived out himself. And all of this is for the goal, in verse 12, of the reputation of the church and its own integrity. He, the, he says that, that you should do this so that uh, you can walk properly before outsiders, meaning he wants us to have a good reputation. That doesn't mean, of course, catering to the norms of the culture. It doesn't mean avoiding difficult topics, but it means communicating clearly and kindly. And as best as it is up to you, you've tried to do all of those things. And that we are known by our character, 
And this is what Jesus says, right? They will know you by your love. And to be de- not to be dependent on anyone else is to say that you, we are living consistently. We are caring for our own. And we are thinking about their needs. And I'm thinking about the way that I go through my life so that I'm not an bur- extra burden on other people. Again, whether it could be physical, it could be you know, financial, it could be <laughs> emotional. Again, that's not a call to being repressed. It's a call to... Deal with the things going on in your life. And that may involve calling on others to help you, but so that you can deal with them, so that you can grow through them. And I was thinking about all these differences that are in the church as I was watching the uh, opening ceremonies the other night. There's something weird about the opening ceremonies of the Olympics that you can't turn it off, and yet it's forever. Right, the long middle part, all the nations come. There were 206 nations in this. Of course, USA was 204 on the list. So, I'm, you know, my kids are trying to stay up. They're like, I just want to see the U.S., you know. And I'm like, finally had to go online to see, find a list. And, I, and we had to call it early. But, uh, but there's something kind of intriguing, right? Because people wear their native dress usually, uh, especially the flag bearers. Um, there's something kind of strange and cool about seeing the way that they represent themselves to the world. And the funny thing about the church is it's supposed to be like that, but so much better. (laughs) Not showing off who we are, but we are called from every tribe and tongue and nation. That's what God's doing. Which means the church is supposed to be from every tribe, tongue, and nation. I mean, we have to begin where, where we are in thinking about this. And are we actually even doing the kind of brotherly love that we're supposed to be doing amongst who's already here in our church? And we don't want to be a church that says, well, other churches are worthless that are a little different than us or have a different kind of demographic makeup than we have. But it should drive us forward to think not only about how we care for one another, but how we care for our neighbors, the other sheep that are of this pasture that the Lord is calling in, whether that's different racial ethnic backgrounds, different economic backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds, different social views. And it gets awkward, doesn't it? That's hard. Every church wants to do that. Most churches don't have the stomach for what it takes. Because it's hard. Now, it doesn't mean that you just sort of melt every distinction. In fact, that's not what we're told in the New Testament. But it is celebrating what is good and beautiful. And as part of our sanctification... It, too, is a guarantee. This is what God is doing. He is calling people that are from every background. He is calling people that are different than me. I mean, even today, I mean, we tend to think about Christianity as a kind of white American or white Western thing, but the majority of Christians in the world are from the global south. 
This is what God's doing. Are we walking that path? Are we on board with his plan? That's the real question. Or are we just taking care of people who look like us? Or just have our interests? Again, this isn't about some ideology from elsewhere. This is about God's kingdom and what he is doing. And all this adds up, as it's getting late, to this simple question. Are we looking to God to be changed? It, of course, applies in any number of different ways. Certainly implies, applies to kind of the care that we have as a community for one another. It applies to what we are doing with our bodies. But it applies in every area of life. Are we following the Lord? Are we looking to Him? Are we looking on dependence for God to be at work, for our hearts to be changed? It's sacrificial, but it's rewarding. It's difficult, but it's freeing. It's dependence on God, yes, but it's also what it means to be fully engaged with what we were meant to be. It is rooted in grace, but it yields powerful change. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are at work in our lives. That the change you want is the change you will bring about. We are not left to our own devices, but your spirit is at work in our hearts. I pray that you would show us what is going on in our own hearts. We would see how our desires are often misplaced, lead us astray. That we wouldn't settle with merely asking whether our actions are wrong, but ways in which our heart needs to change. But with that, Lord, show us how beautiful it is to be made like your son. To be one who really does know what love, joy, peace, and patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control look like. And give us a heart to look more like our Savior than what we selfishly want to be. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.